Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we welcome back Alex Gilbert, who leads space and nuclear regulatory work at Sino Power, is a fellow at the Payne Institute at the Colorado School of Mines, and is a PhD student in space resources at the Payne Institute. In today's episode, Alex will catch us up on the latest developments in nuclear energy innovation, policy, and deployment. We'll talk about what types of technologies are in the development pipeline, how they differ from older technologies, which ones are actually being piloted, and how recent policies, especially the Inflation Reduction Act, are incentivizing their deployment. Stay with us. All right, Alex Gilbert from Zeno Power and the Paint Institute at the Colorado School of Mines. Welcome to Resources Radio, or I should say welcome back to Resources Radio. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be back. So Alex, we're going to talk today about nuclear energy and recent advances in nuclear technologies and policies that have been changing in recent years. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation. And you've been on the show before, but it's been a while. So I'm hoping you can just remind our listeners how you got into the field of energy and environmental topics in the first place. Yeah, definitely. So I originally grew up in Colorado. Uh, I was always uh, focused on the outdoors, backpacking, exploring, enjoying the mountains. And when I started in college, uh, I started focusing on development issues, uh, really looking at international development as a potential career field. And as I was taking several courses, I started to realize more and more how closely environmental issues are tied to development and just human welfare overall, and really started to see things through an environmental lens, seeing how it's tied to economics, how it's tied to society. So I started specializing in environmental issues and uh, ended up going to grad school. And I had a professor there, which I think really kind of uh, defined it well, that if you care about environmental issues, you care about climate change then you really care about energy. It's your top concern because energy has the biggest impact on the environment of anything that humans do. Uh, Conversely, if you care about energy systems, you care about the environment because the environment is the largest constraint on energy systems. So I started focusing more and more on energy systems because of that environmental aspect. And uh, increasingly, I never planned on this, but over time I started getting drawn into nuclear policy. Um, And that's really because if you look at nuclear energy in the United States and globally, it's a very large energy source. The U.S. is the number one single largest clean uh, power source. Um, Even today, hydro, wind, and solar combined produce about as much energy as just nuclear. Uh, And then if you look globally, it's about 10% of global power is from nuclear energy. And uh, next to hydropower, it's the second largest clean energy source globally. So it's this really important role in our clean energy system. But we look at it from a policy perspective, a workforce perspective, there just was not a lot going on. And so I kept getting pulled into it because there was a need for more people to be working on the clean energy policy side there, especially in the mid-2010s. Uh, uh, and then so after that, just really started specializing in nuclear energy and then started dealing with all the issues that are associated with bringing that to market and getting that to reduce emissions. That's great. And and that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. And in particular, we're going to focus on uh, this you know bucket of technologies that we'll refer to as advanced nuclear technologies. And we're going to talk about what the private sector and what the public sector have been doing to kind of push those technologies forward in recent years. But first, I think it would be helpful if you could define for us um, when we use the term advanced nuclear technologies in today's conversation, like what are we talking about? Yeah, so... It's a very squishy term. There's it really, if you talk to different nuclear energy professionals, you'll hear different definitions. 
Um, there's also different definitions in uh, the legislation that's been passed around this issue. Really, the best way to think about advanced nuclear technologies is everything that is not a large light water reactor, which is what currently exists right now. So right now, the U.S. is building uh, two AP-1000s in the south. Um, those are the last of the non-advanced reactors. Everything else that we build moving forward is considered more or less an advanced reactor. Um, what does that mean from a technology perspective? So to start at basics, nuclear fission is based on the fission of atoms to create energy. Uh, what you do is you take uh, a fissile isotope, um, so an atom, usually uranium-235, and you hit it with a neutron. That uh, neutron causes the uh, atom to split. That split creates what we call fission products, which are one of the main things in nuclear waste that we're concerned about, but it also creates energy, which we can use and harness, and it creates more neutrons, usually two or three, that you can then use to create more fissions. And so you get a fission chain reaction to allow you to sustainably produce energy. And because we're dealing with uh, atomic bonds here, not chemical bonds, there's a lot more energy release than, say, burning natural gas or burning coal. So it's a lot of energy. Now, historically, the way that we've harnessed that is what I mentioned earlier, a large light water reactor. Um, what does that mean? Generally, these are reactors that are a gigawatt or more in capacity. Um, they have the uranium produced in fuel rods. Uh, they use the uranium isotope 235, and that is how it actually produces the fission, but it's only enriched about 5%. So about 95% of the uranium in the fuel rods is actually uranium 238, and it doesn't really fission a lot. Um, so that enrichment is a key part of how you run these reactors. Uh, and the, the design philosophy here is really efficiencies of scale. The larger the reactor is, the more that you can uh, get the cost down when you're talking about engineering, regulatory costs, uh, equipment, materials. Um, and then when you run the reactor, you're using water for several things. You're using water to transfer heat. Um, these are either pressurized or boiling water reactors. So it's very much just like a coal or natural gas plant. You're using that to turn a turbine. Um, but you're also using the water to cool the fuel itself. The fuel heats up over time. Uh, and if you don't cool it, it will cause issues like we know meltdowns uh, and other sorts of accident scenarios. But the other thing that's really important that we don't really think about um, uh, outside of the nuclear industry because we haven't used it is water is a moderator. What that means is it slows down the neutron speed. So neutrons have different speeds. And when they hit an atom, if they're going a certain speed, they'll cause it to fission. If they're going too fast or too slow, they might not. And so the water slows that down so they are able to uh, fission atoms appropriately. So what does that mean in terms of advanced reactors? Advanced reactors are essentially everything that's not that. So we first have a class called small modular reactors. They're very similar in that they use fuel rods. They have the same enrichment levels. They use water as the coolant, heat transfer mechanism, and moderator, but they're smaller. So instead of one gigawatt for a reactor, you're talking anywhere from 50 megawatts to a couple hundred megawatts. Um, and the idea there, as we'll get into, is that you kind of are going through a different economic approach. Instead of trying to get efficiencies of scale, you're trying to get efficiencies of serial production. Uh, but otherwise, we also have um, other types of advanced reactors that really kind of change the base uh, elements of those characteristics entirely. They use different fuel forms. So they use uh, just a different chemical uh, setup for the fuel. They don't use fuel rods. Um, some of them have different enrichment levels. And so instead of 5% uranium-235, they go up to 20% uranium-235. Uh, some of them have different coolants. They don't necessarily use water. Uh, they might not need moderators because instead of uh, needing to slow down the neutron speed, they actually use what's called the fast spectrum. They use 
quicker neutrons that enable them to fission more efficiently with their design. So those are all sorts of different factors that if you look, there's a bunch of different ways you can categorize it. Um, the way that I really think about it is we've got molten salt reactors. We've got high temperature gas reactors. Um, those are often uh, uh, known as uh, using triso fuel, uh, which is essentially like little billiard balls of uranium instead of the fuel rods. Uh, we also have uh, liquid metal cool reactors. So there's a bunch of different uh, categorizations that you can look at there, but really it's just it's changing all of the major elements of a reactor to vision in a different way that might be more efficient or more economic. Um, the final thing that I want to flag from the technology perspective, we also have a new category of reactors that, again, not very well defined, but we call them micro-reactors. Now, these uh, are not so much defined by how they're fissioning the atom in terms of, say, the fuel forms or enrichment levels. It's rather their size. So when we look at traditional large light water reactors, those are one gigawatt. Small modular reactors are maybe 50 to 200 plus megawatts per reactor. You put them into a series of uh, units at a single plant. So you might actually have a one gigawatt small modular reactor facility. Uh, the other advanced reactors are somewhere in those hundreds of megawatt scale. Micro reactors are much smaller. Uh, the smallest ones that we're looking at commercially right now are as small as one megawatt. There are many in the five to 10 megawatt range. Depending on how you look at the definitions, you can get up to 20 or 30 megawatts. And that is something that's completely different for the nuclear industry. It's really the way to think about it is it's distributed nuclear energy. It's distributed scale. You could use this for small towns. You could use this on the grid edge. You could use this for remote operations. And so it's opening up the areas that we can actually use nuclear energy. Great. So that's, that's a really helpful uh, starting point for us to understand the different technologies at play. Can you help us understand what some of the differences, and I know we're going to have to speed through this, but, but what are some of the differences with regard to economics and safety of operations and waste when we think about the light water reactors of today versus these you know, uh, next generation technologies that are uh, being discussed and developed? So economics is probably the most important difference, and that's just because when you look at the large light water reactors, once they're built, they're very cheap to operate. You can operate them for decades. The problem is building them in the first place. They are mega projects. They cost billions of dollars. Uh, they can take decade or more to build. And so that is a really big challenge to finance, especially with what we're seeing with electricity markets, increased competition and moving away from rate basing. So on the economic side, we're seeing that the advanced reactor companies are trying a number of different methods. First of all, there's many advanced reactor companies, and that's something that's very different. So we actually have a lot of competition emerging amongst developers. So hopefully that actually provides some competitive energy that we've never seen in the nuclear industry before. But for what they're trying to do on the economic side is instead of trying to get efficiencies of scale by making these things really big, they're trying to go for the economics of series production, essentially looking at how wind and solar were able to iterate rapidly over multiple generations to drive costs down. In the United States, we've never had nth-of-a-kind reactors built. Uh, everything that we've done is essentially a first-of-a-kind bespoke reactor, and that leads to significant increases in costs as well as the construction complexity and issues that arise. So these uh, reactor companies are trying to build many reactors. Uh, they're hoping that they can get to economies of scale. They're hoping that they're going to be able to reduce non-recurring engineering costs add other innovations like, say, factory production, so that it's much cheaper to build these reactors and much more affordable than it has been before. Um, so that is probably the biggest motivator, I think, for the innovation here. 
But on the safety side, we're also seeing major advancements as well. Generally speaking, uh, all of the reactors that we're looking at for this next generation are uh, use different principles to get to what's called inherent safety. The idea being there that you don't need to have active systems to function to keep the reactor safe. And so those active systems are things that we've seen um, to be problematic in all the major accidents. Uh, Fukushima in particular, we saw that they uh, lost offsite power supply. They had their generators flooded in the basement, and so that prevented them from running water over the reactors to cool them, and that led eventually to that accident. When we look at advanced reactors, they completely change all elements of the risk equation. So for industrial risk, it's the consequence of an accident times the probability. So the consequences are going to be a lot smaller for advanced reactors because of their design. One, they're just smaller, so there's less nuclear material at risk. But two, they also don't necessarily run at higher pressures. They don't necessarily need to have that consistent cooling. They don't need operator inventions, uh, interventions as much. And then two, they reduce the likelihood of any accidents happening in the first place by just being simpler systems uh, and by requiring less intervention. Ultimately, when it comes to safety, there will not be an advanced reactor built in the U.S. that is less safe than the existing fleet um, because of regulation. Safety regulation really has that as the base benchmark. But we do expect if you actually run the numbers that next generation reactors will be one to two or more orders of magnitude safer. Um, finally, on waste, waste is more of an uncertainty. It's not an area that's driving this innovation here so much as economics. Uh, if you look at um, how we're kind of scaling down the reactors, we're actually losing some of the efficiencies of scale when it comes to waste production. We expect we'll see more low-level or intermediate waste in terms of just requiring more reactors, requiring more concrete, things that we can handle with uh, the existing waste system, but there's going to be more of it. Now, the big concern really is high-level waste, so the spent nuclear fuel. And what happens there? It's possible that we could see some increases in the volume of that. It's possible that it'll be about the same as existing large light water reactors. That's uncertain. And it also depends on how the fuel cycle works and seeing if there's any innovations there. Um, ultimately, though, we do manage nuclear waste responsibly in the commercial sector. Uh, these are things that we do have short-term solutions for. But we are going to need a geological repository for any type of nuclear energy, and that includes advanced reactors. That is still a major policy challenge. Great. Uh, that That's super helpful. And, you know, this might be a just a, a worthwhile moment to point out that your role at Xenopower does involve nuclear energy and regulatory work. So uh, just want to make sure listeners understand that you are, you know, participating in the nuclear economy. Is there anything you want to say about that just in terms of disclosure or whatever? Yeah, for sure. So we are developing radioisotope power sources. We essentially take some part of the back end of the nuclear fuel cycle, the uh, waste portion, and then we use that to create small power sources for outer space and uh, other remote locations on the Earth. It's something that we uh, have used historically um, from a government perspective to power things like the Mars rovers, uh, deep space probes. And we at Xeno really see ourselves as part of this waste innovation uh, um, group that is emerging right now. There's a number of companies that are starting to say, hey, we've seen all this reactor innovation happening that is really important for the carbon reductions and for the success of the nuclear industry, but we still are going to have this waste challenge. And so what can we do with that waste? What are ways to recycle it or to otherwise address it? Um, ways to maybe potentially store it uh, from a commercial perspective that's longer term. So in terms of the success of the nuclear industry, we definitely are rooting for it. Uh, but our company is really separate from the reactor and the um, uh, large-scale advanced reactor innovations that are happening right now.
Great. Okay. Thank you for that. So now let's move from kind of uh, descriptions of the technologies and their principles and components to like what's happening in the real world. So there are a number of demonstration projects for some of these technologies that are being developed. Can you give us a few examples of what they look like and where there might actually be steel in the ground or, or even plants that are operational? Yeah, so uh, just over a year ago, um, when I was at the Nuclear Innovation Alliance, I worked with a number of the other advanced nuclear NGOs, uh, Third Way, Clean Air Task Force, and ClearPath, to actually look at this question of, okay, beyond just ideas, are these projects actually a real thing? Are they moving forward? What we found is that there's just over 30 reactors around the world that are in what we would consider advanced stages of demonstration, several of which are operating. So first to start off, the U.S. actually built and operated a very small uh, advanced reactor in 2018 uh, that was called Kilopower. It was kilowatt scale reactor to demonstrate uh, the capability for NASA and for space applications. And that was really important just because that was the first novel reactor designed, built, and operated in the U.S. in decades. So that really kind of kicked off things here. That design philosophy has kind of moved forward to a lot of the companies that are developing reactors in the U.S. But abroad, we're actually seeing that there are projects that are operating. Uh, so Russia has a small modular reactor, a light water reactor, uh, the Academic Lomonosov, uh, which is derived from some of their nuclear technologies. It's essentially a floating nuclear power plant. It's a barge, and it is currently powering a small town in the Russian Arctic. And it's not just providing power, it's also providing heat to that town too. And that's really important if you're trying to look at the decarbonization potential. Um, just earlier this year, China uh, officially opened their high temperature gas reactor that they've been working on for several decades. So they've got that demonstration project running as well as some other projects that are in advanced uh, licensing and construction phases. In the U.S., we're essentially right at the point where we're starting licensing for a lot of reactor projects uh, on the commercial side. And so we have three major demonstration projects. Uh, TerraPower and X-Energy have funding from the Department of Energy's Advanced Reactor Demonstration Program. They're going to be submitting their first uh, license applications within a year or so. Um, one, to build a reactor in Wyoming at a retiring coal plant. And then two, to build a reactor in Washington at an existing nuclear power plant. Um, New Scale Power, which uh, just recently went public, uh, is working to build a reactor to power Utah utilities as well. Um, all of those projects are set to be uh, operating by 2030. But we also have a number of small-scale projects, um, Kairos Power, Oklo, Ultral Safe Nuclear Corporation, um, that are moving towards uh, developing uh, different types of projects. Some of them are going to be focusing on more of uh, research-scale stuff. So the Kairos Power Project that is actually undergoing licensing right now um, is to provide information for a larger version that they're doing down the line. Uh, whereas the Ultra Safe Project is actually a research reactor to support uh, research activities at the University of Illinois. Um, one other big one that I do want to flag, though, is Holtec, which is a, a longtime nuclear company, um, has just announced applications for loan guarantees. I think it's over $7 billion in loan guarantees to build a factory to produce reactors and for the first four of its reactors. Um, so we're seeing a lot of momentum here to actually get to the, uh, the first major stage, which is licensing. And we would expect that a lot of these initial small reactors will be online by the middle of the decade with the larger reactors online by the end of the decade. Well, really, really interesting. Um, thank you for giving us such a, such a whirlwind tour in, in a short amount of time. And I know that's what we're doing today. We're really just scratching the surface as we, as we often do on the podcast, but, um, 
let's let's scratch a different surface now, which is policy here in the United States. And this was actually the original motivator for us having this conversation, uh, because there's been a lot of legislation passed in the last five years or so that has uh, advanced nuclear energy in different ways. Of course, we don't have time to go into all of the details, but can you highlight a few ways in which uh, these new pieces of legislation seek to accelerate uh, the deployment of different kinds of advanced nuclear technologies? Yeah, for sure. So it really started off um, in 2017, 2018 with work on kind of two precursor bills, uh, NEMA and NICA is their acronyms. And those really kickstarted innovation at the NRC uh, and the DOE respectively, with the idea being on the NRC side that we're going to need to reform how we do nuclear regulation. The way that our entire regulatory system is set up is around those large light water reactors. And so to be able to handle the whole variety of advanced reactors, we need to reform how we do regulation and also just make it smart regulation, make it effective so that we can reassure, reassure the public that we're doing these reactors safely and to make sure that that process process is working well. NICA was really kind of the beginning of a lot of stuff on the DOE side, making sure that DOE has the capability to support innovation. Um, but since then, almost every major energy bill that we've seen in the last several years has had some nuclear component. The Energy Act of 2020, the Infrastructure Bill last year, uh, the CHIPS Act, um, and the Inflation Reduction Act, which really the Inflation Reduction Act has kind of been the keystone that has capped off this whole area of very active legislation. Um, most of these bills have been bipartisan. This is something that both parties are supporting nuclear right now, and it's actually an area that they see for uh, as an area that both of them can work together because of clean energy and the carbon potential. Uh, and the, the big thing is that these programs have established the basis for demonstration projects, either through direct funding or most recently with the Inflation Reduction Act, which really sets up the tax credit basis so that you can build many of these reactors in the future. It really levels the playing field for advanced reactors with other clean energy sources. That's great. And um, it would be really helpful if you could define a couple of those acronyms you use. DOE, of course, is Department of Energy. NRC is Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And NEMA and NICA, what, what do those stand for? Yeah, the Nuclear Energy Innovation and Modernization Act, which was really focused on uh, making NRC into a modern regulator, and the Nuclear Energy Innovation Capabilities Act, which was focusing on bringing DOE up to speed for advanced reactors. Awesome. Great. Thank you for that. So let's dig a little bit more deeply into the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act, which you you know uh, seem to highlight as a particularly important source here. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which the IRA is likely to benefit not just sort of next generation reactors, but also the fleet of existing reactors, many of which have you know retired in recent years or have been in other types of economic straits? Yeah, so the primary way that the Inflation Reduction Act benefits nuclear is in tax credits. Uh, so we see that for um, advanced nuclear specifically, that it establishes uh, uh, tax credits that are essentially uh, equal uh, to other clean energy sources out there. That's something that we've had some stuff previously, but it has not been as optimized as the current system is. And that's going to be really valuable because when we look at where advanced nuclear projects are right now, they're still in the first of a kind development stage. They are going to kind of need some of that support from the uh, tax credit side to be able to get to market and to start competing and start scaling up until they can actually become more self-sufficient. But there are a number of other small tax credits uh, throughout the Inflation Reduction Act that actually could help out. The Advanced Manufacturing Production Tax Credit, um, some of the support for uh, hydrogen tax credit, things that are more uh, um, 
say, demand focus or focus on other opportunities that could also include nuclear were supportive. One of the big ways, though, was actually what you hinted at. The Inflation Reduction Act provides support for the existing uh, nuclear fleet as well. And so what we've seen over the last 10 years is actually a large number of retirements of the existing nuclear fleet, which, again, as I mentioned earlier, the nuclear fleet is the largest single source of carbon-free power in the U.S., that's been a big state and federal policy concern for years, and we've seen a lot of work to try and reverse those retirements. We've had uh, over 10 gigawatts retire. Um, there were at one point as many as 20 gigawatts at risk. Uh, and the Inflation Reduction Act, in working in conjunction actually with some provisions in the infrastructure bill, had some funding that would enable you to target the most at-risk reactors of retirement. And what we've actually seen in the last several weeks since the Inflation Reduction Act was passed um, Diablo Canyon uh, in California, which was set to close down, has completely flipped from having political opposition to any sort of long-term operations to having significant political support, including from the governor, for long-term operations. And so the infrastructure funding, the Inflation Reduction Act funding, seems to really change the direction of that facility uh, and can really help ensure that California has reliability to support uh, its overall energy transition that it's really going quickly on. But we've also seen that uh, Palisades in Michigan, which actually just closed down earlier this year, is looking at restarting. They're actually looking at coming back online. And that's something that I think many people, even the nuclear industry, did not expect to happen. So this is something that the funding in the Inflation Reduction Act is already having impacts on markets. Yeah, it is. It is really interesting to see that. And um, yeah, Palisades is uh, not not too far from where I live here in Michigan. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether that uh, really does come back online and begin operating again. So, uh, Alex, one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, which is, um, you know, kind of an unfair question. But, you know, sometimes we ask unfair questions on this show, which is about your expectations for the future. Um, we talk about projections a lot here at RFF, and we publish a report every year that looks at uh, projections for different organizations. And, you know, there's enormous uncertainty across all sorts of dimensions. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, if you had to speculate about what you think about the future of nuclear in the United States, you know, where do you think it's going to be in five or 10 years? Do you think we're likely to see kind of a flat line of electricity generation from nuclear? Do you think we're going to see moderate growth? Are we going to see rapid growth? Where would you kind of put your chips if you had to put them down? Yeah, so I think what we've seen from the policy side, uh, there was a large concern for a long time that nuclear production in the U.S. was going to start steadily declining through the middle of the century as reactors continue to retire. It seems right now with the recent policy developments that nuclear uh, power from the existing power plants is actually probably going to largely remain flat. We actually don't really expect there to be a lot more retirements driven by markets than, say, the next 10 years or so. Uh, the big question really is what happens on the advanced nuclear side. Now, one of the issues with nuclear is it's a longer uh, time frame asset. It takes a while to build these projects and to get them established. They'll operate for a very long time once they're built, but it takes a while. So over the next 10 years, there's a couple of things I think uh, will happen. First, we'll see micro reactors, which are those one megawatt to say 20 or 30 megawatt reactors really grow and start accelerating quickly. Um, the project life cycles on those are really short. Um, in theory, right now, the primary determining factor for the timeline there is actually just licensing. Um, once you have uh, production uh, capabilities, you can probably get one of those up and going within 12 months otherwise on the construction side. So we could see a large number of microreactors being built in locations throughout the U.S., particularly in Alaska. Uh, but I think in terms of the 
broader energy markets, the big thing we're likely to see is actually a large amount of orders for advanced reactors, um, especially as these demonstration projects move closer and closer to operation by the end of the decade. I expect that we'll start seeing advanced nuclear considered in a lot more integrated resource plans, a lot more utility level analysis. We'll start seeing more orders for them. But really, when you're looking at the decarbonization potential here, how much can this generation grow? We're not going to see a lot in the 2020s. What we're really going to see is the 2030s is where a lot of this is going to start happening with rapid acceleration in the 2040s if the industry takes off, if the industry can solve its economic challenges. And I think that's one of my big takeaways from the Inflation Reduction Act. The policy environment is now largely complete. Uh, the federal government, uh, working with state governments and working through its different regulator uh, and other entities, is largely setting up the stage for industry to deliver. It's now going to be on industry to deliver and show that they can build these projects largely on time, largely on budget, in a way that is economic. And if the industry can do that, there are a number of studies coming out in the last several months showing that the potential is literally hundreds of gigawatts. Um, we could really see by uh, the middle of the century that advanced reactors could dwarf the scale of the existing nuclear fleet. Uh, we could see 100 gigawatts, we could see up to three or 400 gigawatts, and that could not just be uh, decarbonizing power, it can also help decarbonize industrial heat or process heat. That's the potential. Uh, we're not going to know whether industry has cracked that nut, though, for quite a while. It's going to be a really big challenge for them to get to that scale, um, especially in those timeframes. Yeah, that's a great answer and, and really helpful to give us some of the most important elements of uncertainty and uh, where the growth could really come from or, or where it could stall out. Uh, so certainly something we'll be watching really closely, and I'm sure our listeners will too in the years ahead. Uh, so Alex, let's close it out now with the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is asking you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard uh, that you think is really great and that you think our listeners might enjoy. So what's at the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack? Yeah, so um, former President Obama has been uh, narrating a new series called Our Great National Parks. It was just released earlier this year, um, especially as someone that has been really focused on outdoors, wildernesses, national parks, all of that. Um, it's been really great just to watch that uh, series. It, uh, I believe, was probably released about three or four months ago. Um, and I'm most of the way through the series now. I'm hoping that they do uh, additional seasons just because if you know anything about our national parks, uh, they're huge and there's things that you learn all the time about them. So that that's something I've been really enjoying. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. I, I haven't been able to watch that yet, but I've been meaning to get my four-year-old to sit down with me and, and watch it together. We'll see if we can coax him into it. Um, this has been great. Alex uh, Gilbert from uh, Zeno Power and from the Colorado School of Mines. Thank you again so much for coming onto the show today, helping us learn about these advanced nuclear technologies and where they might be taking us in the future. We really appreciate your voice. Excellent. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. 
RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.